I want to thank our sponsors, Athletic Greens, who created AG1, one of the most innovative packets of supplements, including 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. These ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I personally started using Athletic Greens and love the way I feel in the morning after I drink it. And I no longer have energy crashes throughout the day. And the best part is that it's delicious. The founder of Athletic Greens created AG1 because he experienced a ton of gut health and ended up on a complicated and expensive supplement routine to recover. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash yasmine. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash yasmine, Y-A-S-M-E-E-N, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Chef Pierre Chum, a celebrated chef, restaurateur, author, entrepreneur, and environmental activist. His TED Talk, A Forgotten Ancient Grain That Could Help Africa Prosper, moved me and I felt his story was so powerful that we had to have him on the show. And our mutual friend, Nicole Patrice, put us in touch. So thank you very much, Nicole Patrice. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chef Pierre. Thank you. So to kick it off, uh, you're an ambassador for uh, West African and Senegalese cooking and food. And I'd love to know how your journey started. Well, my journey didn't start with food in mind. I was born and raised in Dakar, Senegal, which is uh, the most western coast in Africa. And uh, I grew up in a culture where food is a gender-based activity. It's like women are in the kitchen and the men are, I guess, playing soccer or something else, but not in the kitchen. So, I, you know, I, I wasn't um, thinking of food as a career. As a matter of fact, I went to the regular uh, school and in university, I was in a department of physics and chemistry. This was my my thing. Uh, I happened to also be part of a student movement. You know, in Senegal, students are very political, and we had a very, very uh, feisty student movement. And we had been involved in a series of strike. You know, just uh, asking for better studying conditions. And that year, in particular, the I'm talking about the late eighties now. The strikes went on for so long that the government decided to shut down the university and we all had to start over a whole brand new uh, year, a whole new year. So it was like everyone starting over and that wasn't an option for me. That wasn't an option for many of my peers. And so we started to figure out ways to continue our studies, to go to a different, either different school or to go to a different country, which was the case for me. I found this college in Ohio, out of all places, and I applied to continue my degrees in physics and chemistry, and I was accepted. 
went to the embassy, the U.S. embassy, and I got a student visa. And on my way to Ohio, I decided to stop by New York. So that's a short story, right? I'm giving you the, the, the abbreviated story. So I, I, I stopped by New York because a friend of mine lived in New York, also from Senegal, and he lived in this immigrant community in New York that was at the time in Midtown, in uh, Union Square, I mean, Union Square, in Times Square area. But uh, it was 1989, so Times Square was not what the, anything like what it looks like today. It was uh, uh, the time of the crack epidemic, the AIDS epidemic. I mean, New York was in a really terrible situation. And it really was a, a, a scary time, you know. And I, the place we lived in was not really a hotel. It was like immigrants who lived there and lots of drug addicts, any type of rejects of society, you would see like needles on the floor. I mean, it really was terrible. And I just was wondering, what am I doing in this, you know, hell, hell, hell-like place? And and I was just supposed to be there for, for one week and, and then take the bus to Ohio. But three days after I arrived, sure enough, I got broken in and, and I was, all my belongings were stolen, particularly the, the money that I had brought with me, which was not much. I mean, about $3,000 that my father had just managed to to give me. It was going to take me there to Ohio, and then I was going to figure out how to, to continue everything. But uh, it was, you know, that was all I had. I had a return ticket. I was very tempted to return to Senegal. And, you know, I was not really getting New York. New York was not what I had seen on TV at all. You know, it was like people you know, pretty much dying in the streets of Times Square and it was getting cold. I had never seen winter before. So it happened that another person who lived in that hotel, another guy from Senegal, was working in a restaurant downtown in the village. And he knew about my situation and he said, hey, you know, we're looking for a busboy. That's a job that doesn't require any particular skill. You can talk to the boss and uh, you could start at least make a little money before either continuing to Ohio or whatever. And I took the job, and uh, and that job changed everything. That was my first really, my first job ever, and my first contact with the restaurant world. And uh, the job of boss boy, as you know, is like cleaning the plates, taking them to the kitchen, filling up the glass of water, that kind of thing. So I'm going in the kitchen quite frequently, and that's my very first, or I should say, my second cultural shock in New York. Now my my first week, and I'm in this kitchen. And I realized that there's only guys in the kitchen. There's not a single woman. And I'm like, not really coming from that, you know, I'm coming from a culture where there's only women in the kitchen. Men can't even figure out how to cook. <laughs> and that's, that was really amazing because those guys were making some, I mean, beautiful plates, beautiful plates that really like took me to, to um, you know, a different, I really started to, to, to want to know more about what they were doing. Every time I would go back in the kitchen to bring empty plates, I would stay probably longer than other busboys would have done. And and the chef noticed that the chef kind of took a liking in me. I was this young kid. And the chef also had this um, thing about practicing his French. He had studied in France for like maybe a, a few months in the past. And he liked to practice his French with me. Senegal is a French colonized country, so I speak French. And so, you know, I would practice French with him. And he knew about my situation over time. He asked me if I was interested in making extra money. You know, he would teach me 
the way he had learned himself from the bottom up. So the first thing would be to, after my busboy jobs uh, shifts, I would come into the kitchen and start washing dishes and pots and plates and that whole. And that was probably the worst job I've ever had. I hated it <laughs> with a passion. I was like, you know, I always thought of myself as this, you know, this was a manual job. It was beneath me, you know, I was, uh, you know, uh, uh, an intellectual, you know, so I thought, you know, <laughs> and I never thought of doing such thing. And, and, but it really was the best experience and the best school I've ever been to. Even today at my restaurants, when I hire cooks and chefs, I always make sure these guys have been through washing pots and pans. You know, I prefer to have these kind of uh, uh, schooling, I should say, than someone who just comes freshly from culinary school because that's a, that's a different type of um, uh, a person. That's a person who thinks he knows everything unlike the person who starts at the bottom and who really understands that there's so much room to grow and, and, and it takes hard work. So anyway, so it was when I started in the kitchen, really, washing pots and, 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 and plates, really uh, long hours. But the first thing that happened, and that's a classic for everyone in the in the kitchen, there's a prep, that's the, the, the station right above the dishwasher, and the prep guy doesn't show up. Oftentimes, he doesn't show up. And when he doesn't show up, they take the dishwasher to start to teach him to do the prep because the prep is very important. You need to have all the, the vegetables peeled and chopped and the, the onions cut the right way, potatoes, whatever is in the menu, the prep person is the person who takes care of that for the mise en place. So I started to learn about the prep when the prep guy didn't show up. And learning about the prep, started to learn my knife skills. And, you know, the chef was behind me also, you know, practicing his French at the same time as teaching me the right way to handle a knife, the right way to, you know, clear the board and put the cutting board down and with a wet towel underneath so it won't move, so you cut the onions and all that. But tons and tons of onions peeled later, you know, I moved from, prep to uh, garde manger because the garde manger doesn't show up and that's how the uh, progress they started to move up the, up the ladder but garde manger something interesting happened is when i really made the connection between cooking and chemistry because i re- i saw that all you know garde manger started to learn about some of the dressings and the sauces and the vinaigrettes and then you realize that those dressings uh, really a chemical reaction is acid and lipid is like an emulsion that those theories that I had already from at university started to make sense. It was really like the type of chemistry that was much more interesting to me than what I was had been studied at in in in, in, in at university and, and I really took a liking in this and I started to really dig a little deeper and deeper and deeper and 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 today 30 years later I'm still digging deeper but you know I'm making mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm making it a, a, a quick a, a quick that's how I got to a long way around the bound to, t- to tell you how I got into cooking. Amazing wow I, I love that story and um, Pierre so what kind of restaurant did you start at and also at what point did you kind of give up on the dream to go to Ohio and pursue uh, this more maybe linear path. Uh, what was kind of like the tipping point for you? Well, so so Garvin's, the name of the restaurant in the West Village, was an American restaurant that was serving, you know, a creative American cuisine. Um, you know, using local products. It was a time when 
people were starting to really talk about, you know, using uh, not quite farm to table, but the chef had that in, in, in his approach to cooking. So I left Garvin's when I had the skills. I had worked at Mercy and then I had even worked the grill at Garvin's. So I left. I had a skill now. I had a job. And uh, yeah, Ohio was looking less and less interesting. New York was uh, starting to see some charm into New York. And again, I was I knew there was a, a path to grow and there was nothing shameful about cooking anymore because everyone around me, all my crew now, my family, my friends in New York were, were, were cooks and chefs. It was a, you know, a culture that I, I loved. You know, it was fun. So you know, I, I hadn't completely given up studying because uh, I'm from that culture, you know, we had to get our degrees. I mean, my parents I had didn't even really know what I was up to. Thank God technology wasn't what it is now. There was no internet, you know, it's like they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't reach me all the time. You know, they knew I was, you know, a hard worker. They they trusted me and they thought I'd figure out a way to, to, to continue my studies. And I would call periodically, like maybe once a month to say, you know, and just the calls were so expensive. So I would just talk quickly, hello to Papa, hello to mom. And then my siblings, one by one, would come on the phone and then my my time on the phone was up. So, you know, everything was fine. And I kept it this way, <laughs> kept it this way. on my on, And while while I'm working in different restaurants, New York was fun. It was like all these different opportunities. Italian, I worked with Italian restaurants. And then I worked at a French bistro, Jean-Claude which uh, worked for uh, opened it actually and then uh, and then this other restaurant came which was completely different you know we had the french and italian were the classics in new york at the time and and, and chinese for the most part and uh, and then this guy opened a restaurant in soho called boom it was a uh, uh, food that was inspired by southeast asian flavors and that really was exciting you know? and that place was exciting it was bustling everyone it was the talk of the town and you know, I managed to get a job there. I got an interview. Actually, I left Jean-Claude, I remember, on my break, because the both places were in Soho. On my break at Jean-Claude, I still had my, my chef jacket, uh, just on a lunch break, and I walked up into Boom. And coincidentally, Jeffrey, the chef, was at the door, and he saw me, and I said, I'm looking for a job. Are you hiring? I heard great things about it. And then he's like, oh, wow, you seem like you're already dressed up for the job. Come in, come with me in the kitchen. <laughs> come with me in the kitchen. He didn't know I only had like one hour break and followed him in the kitchen, showed me what he was doing. You know, I took that hour, probably lasted a little longer than an hour. Returned to Jean-Claude to give a notice. I'm like, out of here, I'm going to be studying, working at Boom. You know, I had, you know, I, I, I like the French bistro, but this thing he was Jeffrey was doing was just so much more exciting. And why was it exciting? Because it had something that kind of looked like the food I loved eating growing up. You know, a South Asian cuisine, they use fermented flavors, which is very big in our cuisine in Senegal. They use spices that we love. They use citrus, you know, fruit. There's just an exciting cuisine and the colors and all that. So, you know, I thought this was fun and I loved the chef. And so I went there and I started working there. And that's really where I started to see a mission that was tracing into me. And correct me if I'm leaving your question, right? Is it, I'm still on your answering the question, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, still very much on the question. Yeah, no, it's uh, just to follow the path of how you got to where you got to is fascinating. So you went from French and Italian to South Asian. And I'm curious, you know, how did uh, that 
or I guess what was the time period in which African and also West African cuisine came to New York? Or were you the, were you the one who actually brought it there? And so I was just about to get there. So I'm I'm now <laughs> I'm now getting these flavors that are it's similar somewhat to the flavors that I grew up eating. The excitement, you know, Dakar, the city where I grew up, is is a very you know um, interesting cuisine to you have a it's a hub you know because it's the most western coast of africa it's been the entrance to africa for many different cultures you know mariners came from portugal from you know uh, the the dutch the, the french all came i'm talking about 500 plus years coming through senegal but in addition to that we also have the neighboring influences you know from west africa and Cote d'Ivoire, nigeria mali they have like all subcultures within Dakar and most interesting part is also you have a strong Lebanese culture and a strong Vietnamese culture. Interesting because the Vietnamese it's because of the same colonial past with the French. So I was familiar with all these different cultures, food cultures because they exist there in the street food of Dakar. And now I'm seeing them and tasting them in, in Chef Marie's cuisine. It's like bringing flavors from Vietnam and from Thailand and, and from Indonesia. And I'm like, ah, oh, this is like interesting. And I'm in this place that's called the food capital of the world. And this guy is bringing these great flavors and he's this big hit now. You know, Where is Africa in this world now? Africa was absent, you know, in the food capital of the world that New York was calling itself to be. And, uh, and I saw this as an opportunity. That's my first time just thinking about this as an opportunity. And I started a little bit about uh, following this path, you know, there's a time in the restaurant world every day around five before service opens for dinner where we have, we all sit together, the staff, and we eat the family meal. And the family meal is prepared by different of the, many, uh, one cook is chosen to cook the family meal for the whole restaurant. And when it was my turn to cook family meal, I started to bring back food from memories, the food that my mom used to cook for me. And I, that that rich peanut sauce with uh, vegetables, cabbage, carrots, sweet potatoes. Or I would drink the onion, caramelized onion and lime with grilled chicken that brings that chow to grill. And, you know, it's called yasa. It's like an amazing dish. And those, those dishes that I would bring was new to the stuff. You know, all those guys never had those flavors. And they were so excited. And that oftentimes I would get comments like, hey, we should bring it as a special at the restaurant. And even Chef Marie was like, hey, this is very exciting. So that's like really taking me to that confirmation that there's room for this West African cuisine. There's room for that. And Boom was so popular that it became, you know, we started to open a couple of restaurants. We opened one in the Hamptons for the summer and we opened one in South Beach, Miami. And eventually I was grown from like, the line cook to a sous chef position. I was promoted to sous chef. And when Miami opened, I was sent to Miami to run Miami's kitchen for the whole winter season with the explicit nod to add some of those dishes that I serve for family meals, like start serving them. Chef told me to start serving them at a, a special first and then introduce a couple in the menu. And that's what I, and that's what I did. And, uh, and those were hits. Was a hit actually. It was so great that one of them was talked about by a local food critic in in his article, and not only talked about it but mentioned me by name. And that was to me something that was beyond. I mean, I, you know, I was still in that 
mindset. I'm like this um, immigrant who's like just trying to find his path. And now I'm like just cooking this dish, very simple from back home. And, and it's written in an article in a paper in, in, in like, wow, in America, you know, that was quite a, a thing. And that, wow. uh, and, and that really, really got me on that path. I have to figure out how to get this thing going. And I returned to New York after the winter. I was just there for the winter. I returned to New York and I started the catering business in parallel to t- making my shifts at the restaurant to make uh, make a living. And the catering was just targeting um, New York clientele who were regular at the restaurant, but who knew me. I had become friends with them. And I would do private events at their homes, but bringing those flavors. And that catering grew to become my very first restaurant a few years later. And I've opened uh, in uh, Brooklyn, a place called Yolele in Brooklyn, in Bed-Stuy, in an area of Brooklyn that <laughs> was definitely had never seen a sit-down restaurant. It was deep in Bed-Stuy before Bed-Stuy became, you know, before Brooklyn became gentrified like it is today. So it, that place was my very first place and it became a destination. It was really like uh, a labor of love. Um, I had no idea really about the, the business of the restaurant. I knew what I wanted to cook. I had perfected my menu. I took a couple of friends from Senegal, childhood friends who also <laughs> didn't know much about the restaurant business. But we were like, we're going to figure it out. And, and we figured it out <laughs> for, for a couple of years. We figured it out. But uh, eventually, uh, this partnership didn't work out. I mean, it was like uh, you know, something that, that should have never happened. But oh yeah, or, or it should have happened because it was a, a good schooling for me. But, uh, you know, that restaurant got some reviews. The New York Times did an article and I got my first cookbook deal. Actually, my cookbook, wow. deal, my cookbook deal actually came. That gave you the story, really. <laughs> it wasn't as easy as it sounded. I started collecting recipes, and as the recipes were being collected, many of those recipes were collected by me talking to my mom on the phone. Oh, by that time, <laughs> by that time my mom and my dad obviously had known that I wasn't doing physics and chemistry anymore. I had told them that I was in the kitchen and I was waiting for the, the, the my father yelling at me. But, and then I was very surprised to hear both of them they, being very supportive. My mom already loved food. You know, she was already, you know, I would say a foodie before her time. She she had a collection of cookbooks. And she actually reminded me an interesting story. She said when I was five years old, I used to look at her cookbook collection. She had a cookbook, a French cookbook collection, the La Rousse Culinaire. And she said, at five, I would love to look at the pictures of the book just because <laughs> the pictures looked very appetizing to me. And, uh, and But there was no way to know that I would be interested in cooking. So I guess it was predestined. But uh, anyway, so um, I had collection, uh, collected recipes from my mom over the phone. And those recipes, I was applying them at the restaurant. And over time, I looked at them and I realized that this was a potential cookbook. And that's when I started to gather all that and write a proposal and try to look for a publisher, which was the most <laughs> difficult thing to convince a publisher that there is room for an African cookbook in, in America. And, and no, I mean, mm-hmm. everyone I received maybe a, a thousand no's. And, and eventually, eventually, I found this amazing woman, Hiroko Kifner, who runs Lake Isle Press. And she became my very first publisher and who ended up publishing my three first cookbooks 
my fourth one is going to be published uh, next year by a different publisher by Penguin. But uh, that was really she's the one who who saw the the what I was talking about and and supported me and and the book just came out and came out beautifully. If it became. Congrats. And uh, thank you. And what's the name of the book? The first book named after my restaurant. It was called Yolele. Which uh, the Yolele was the name of my first restaurant, which is also the name of my food company at the moment. But uh, Yolele was a book about uh, the food that inspires my cuisine. So it was a tribute to my mother, the tribute to the women of my family. I traveled to Senegal with a photographer, Adam Bartos, to take, capture those moments in the kitchen traditionally. And the book, you can see throughout the book, these beautiful portraits of the women of my family, because I really wanted to be intentional about that to make sure this was the book that was dedicated to them because they were the ones who cooked and allowed me to to learn their food. And otherwise, you know, that food was not going to be transmitted. They transmitted it from generation to generation, grandmother to, to mother to daughter. That was the the, the, the the thing I wanted to honor in the sort of book. And the book became finalist of the Julia Child Award as a first cookbook. I was like, wow. and my publisher, me and my, we were beyond, beyond thrilled. And, and that was, I believe part of it was the blessings from those grandmothers. Wow. Wow. So uh, up here, it sounds like that you have just this resilience and tenacity um, and entrepreneurial creative spirit. Where does that come from? Did you always have that? Or did you, do you feel like New York inspired it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, resiliency is uh, something I've, I've had. I believe I didn't know where from, but uh, my first experience in New York, New York played a role, absolutely. You know, arriving and three days later, losing everything and almost finding yourself in the street and living in this uh, uh, really awful place. I was living in that hotel in Times Square. You know, I, I give you a little picture. I mean, I mentioned uh, the needles on the floor. There was shared bathroom. Uh, every floor had a shared bathroom, but you know, I'm not mentioning the the rats and the roaches. And we were sharing the rooms to like four or five in the rooms. It was just awful, awful. And 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 uh, and that's when I really started to 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 learn to, I mean, to be resilient. You know, I'm like, okay, this is this is what it is. You know, you go back home, and then you know, you you look like a fool first of all for losing that money, and then you and in addition to that. Uh, what's next? And but or you stick around, you roll up your sleeves, and you know, and and wash dishes, and bust the tables, and 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 really work hard to get out of that. And when I saw cooking as an opportunity to grow, you know, going, I could go from dishwasher to garde manger to garde manger to to grill, and gradually to sous chef. And you know, I was like, oh, there's a path. And then I really immersed myself into this this new um, uh, activity. And I was very passionate about it. I loved it because it learned what not to love about cooking. You know, it's like instant gratification. It was delicious. All those things I could do for myself now. When I started to read about food, you know, and, and Chef was really great at guiding me through the cookbooks that I should be reading. And I was fortunate to have this passion for reading from also my mother. My mother, at an early stage uh, of my life, she had uh, um, gotten me into a, a, a cultural center, the French cultural center that had beautiful uh, library. And at the, the library, I would go every Wednesday and I would just spend like uh, two hours of just reading. So reading was just something I had in me. And now it was reading about food and, and reading about food and coming and applying it in the kitchen. And, and, and I realized that food was like there's endless way of learning 
until I realized that now my mission was to bring the food of my food culture, the food of my culture. I started to really dig back and read about my food culture. There was not much written, but I started, it became my inspiration. You know, if I'm not finding the writing, I'm going to write it myself. Write my mother's recipes. I'm going to write the recipes that I taste, that I experience, that I remember from memory, and try to bring and bring them back on the plate. And that just became this, uh, you know, this endless well of inspiration that I could find in, in this in this uh, in this mission of bringing this food culture of, of my of my origins. Amazing. And what do you think people misunderstand most about both West African food and just Senegalese food in general when you were bringing this over? I mean, obviously you're the, you were one of the first kind of pioneers to bring this food to New York and to also bring it to the cookbooks and, and to kind of um, bring it to mainstream culture. And what do you think people misunderstand or maybe uh, don't understand about the food and the culture, just generally speaking? Oh, there's this. So the misunderstanding goes deep. It was, it was back um, hundreds of years, really. There's this always been this uh really uh to, to be to be uh gentle uh, very difficult uh relationship between the west and africa for 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 many years you know it's been always a relationship that's based on exploitation extraction uh, uh and 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 lies because the lies were necessary to 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 justify that those actions right so africa was presented in a way that's not very flattering often it was like uh you know savages and civilized you know and that was done with the help of the media to the media was portraying africa in this light and and that really made people just have an idea of africa and that idea has been transmitted over time and that's why you know we we we, we see this this uh, this misunderstanding and that especially when it comes to the food people don't see africa this continent of abundance because in the media they see you know famine they see wars they see you know refugees they see all kind of crises you know but they don't see the africa that i, I grew up in and that many of us grew up in which is you know loving africa joyful africa you know abundance great food diversity you know and and all of that and and forgetting that it all began in africa too forgetting that uh, you know you can actually argue that uh, this is where we mastered fire this is where uh, we started first cuisine this is a cuisine that's so uh, not only rich but that idea man, the concept of food as medicine is very much african you know and obviously another way of extracting now you see those quotes being quoted to you know greeks and all that but that's not really the case you know this is our approach this was our approach my approach that when i grew up this was always the case food was always around how to to heal about around community around uh just uh nurturing nourishing and uh, and and Africa has been influencing food culture of the world for a long time, and it's not talked about. You know, when you look at the Middle Passage, just here in, in the Americas, and the food influence of West Africa in, in, in Southern cuisine, 
in Louisiana, you know, the, the, the iconic dishes that you have, like gumbo, jambalaya, hopping jones, you go all the way to Brazil, you know, the whole Bayan cuisine. Mexico, you know, like people don't even connect that, but tamales and moles, all of those have direct connection with West Africa because of the Atlantic slave trade. You know, ingredients that arrived here through the Atlantic slave trade, rice, okra, you know I mean, the rice is the most fascinating part because people always connect rice with Asia, but rice that exists here in America, the rice that made the Carolina gold, which was called the, the rice, that, that was the rice that was brought by slaves from West Africa. That was that, because there's two big families of rice. There's a, a, a Oriza Glaberima, which is the African rice, and the Oriza Sativa, which is the Asian rice. But the Oriza, the, the, the family of rice that came to the America is the Oriza Glaberima. And there's an interesting book that you could find out about, find out about that called Black Rice by Harvard Press. And that book traces back how the same rice culture, the same method of growing rice that was done in West Africa is the same one that was brought to the plantations in, 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 in North Carolina, in South Carolina, in Louisiana, in Brazil, in, in, in Jamaica, in Cuba, and all in Mexico. You know, imagine Mexican cuisine without rice. So that's also the, the misunderstandings. People don't understand that African food is also very familiar because those are flavors that have arrived here for hundreds of years. That's true. Those are flavors that have been uh, ad, ad, adopted to this environment, but they, the core of the recipe is directly connected to West Africa. When you eat a gumbo, you eat the same okra stew that I eat in Senegal, in Nigeria. When you eat a jambalaya, you eat the same jollof rice that they eat in Senegal, in Ghana, in Nigeria, So and so on and so forth. The mafe that we have is the mole. In, in, in Mexico, the same. We make it with peanut base and they sometimes make it with a nut base. So it's like the, the ingredients sometimes vary because of the environment. You go to Brazil, they have acarajé. We have acara, that's the same black IP feeders. So those are like, I can go on and on and on. There's a, a lot of those ingredients that Africa has contributed to the cuisines of, uh, of, of the world. And then I could, you know, it's not only the Americas, even. Spain, you know, the, the most iconic dish of Spain, paella. Paella was brought to Spain. The rice was brought to Spain through the Moors. The Moors brought this rice in Valencia in the 16th century. At the time, the Moors were occupying Spain. They were like the, 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 the rulers of Spain. And most people don't realize, but the Moors are what was called the translation of Moors for the black people. People connect most with uh, Muslims. Yes, they were Muslims, but they were Muslims that came all the way from Morocco, Mauritania, all the way up to North Senegal. And the same dish, the paella, is the same similar dish to our national dish in Senegal that we call chebujen, which is the same red rice with seafood they eaten around the bowl, just like they do in Spain. The only dish they eat around the bowl, we eat all our food around the bowl. They have the same crust of the uh, on the side, you know. The, we make the same crust from the bottom of the the the, the, cooking of, the pot of the rice. So it's uh, there's so many similarities. So that's uh, you know that's interesting to see how food can can make you travel and and every dish actually every plate is a, is telling you a story when you trace the ingredients and you trace the the people that grows it and and that's a fascinating aspect of food that we don't often talk about and really for me that 
really makes it even more interesting because I could read now through the ingredients. My love of reading had gone from the reading, writing written words to like you know, in, ingredients and flavors and spices. It tells your story. It tells your beautiful story of like your ancestors, really you communicating with them because that's the story of fishes and mastering of seeds and agriculture that really been transmitted of generation and generation. And today you're like here eating it or cooking for with it and sharing it with other people and you're transmitting it to other generations. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. I love that. Every dish tells a story. I will remember that quote for a long time. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, and, Pierre, and so how did the pandemic kind of shift your perspective um, and even just your, your lens and your business? Um, how did you guys kind of move through that, that couple of years? Oh, the, the pandemic was um, very difficult for the industry in general, restaurant industry in particular. And uh, we had to to think really fast. We had to adjust every single day. There was a new thing, you know. And as you know, in the beginning, in particular, when we realized that we couldn't have people indoors anymore, that was a, a crazy uh, situation for everyone. No one knew what to how to deal with it. From like Michelin star restaurants all the way to the bottom, it was like that was all our industry was based on around that you get tables you put the food on top of the tables and people come and eat and now you can't do that anymore so we had to figure out how to bring the food to the people and for me it was also another way to think about rethink my my, my approach to to the food you know my restaurant is in harlem in uh, on 110th street and and uh, and not far from my restaurant there's like a major hospital and we were talking about first responders who were like working days, uh, nonstop hours to like figure out a way out of this pandemic. How could we help? So we went to the hospital itself and say, hey, we have this restaurant, we have this kitchen, we have people who are willing and able who don't want to stop working. You know, I mean, they have no choice because it's, it's tough, you know, without a salary, how are they going to? survive so can we help can we bring food and they were very very happy about that and you know we started to bring food to the restaurant to the to the hospitals and and the nurses and doctors started taking pictures of them and the food from teranga teranga coming and posting it i mean it was so beautiful that we even had abc television came in and did a segment on on us bringing that food to the first responders and that really was the the, the first moment we realized that we can be an, a help to the solution to this, you know, to the community. We can be part of the community this way. We also saw that being in Harlem, there were shelters that are um, children's shelters. And those kids, they had their lunch only because they were going to school. And now schools were closed. So kids had to figure out a way to have lunch access to them. So we partnered with an organization called Harlem Grown, a beautiful organization. And uh, and we, we figured out a way to make sure that our food would also reach those kids in Harlem. It turns out many of those kids were like of African descent or, or, or kids from African-American communities and who had been in shelter because their mother was battered, uh, whatever, family crisis. 
And now they were bring, getting those flavors to them, those food to them. And, and that was working. And, and we were able to keep our doors open. We were able to keep most of our stuff on, 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 on salary. Thanks to just this shifting in mindset instead of like uh, mourning the fact that we couldn't get people indoors anymore. We took the food to them and we took the food to the people who needed the most. And that really was so much more rewarding than than just the money that you would make from, you know, selling the food. It was like you're bringing, you know, you're nourishing people, you're strengthening communities, you're giving hope. Amazing. And so just to, to wrap up, we got like one um, question left. Mm-hmm. What, what sort of things have surprised you the most while you've been on this journey? I mean, you've, you came to the New York and was it the 80s? Mm-hmm. You know, it's now 2022. Um, what has surprised you the most, like looking back on on your journey of uh, becoming kind of this multidimensional being of entrepreneur, restaurateur, um, you know, creating your own food brands <laughs> and more. So, yeah, can you tell us what, looking back, what surprised you the most? What surprised me the most probably is just the, the journey, really. The journey that I, you know, I, I, I haven't seen, I couldn't even, I still pinch myself looking back. I'm like, wow, you know, it's been, it's been a, yeah, it's been a, a it's been, it was beautiful, it was exhilarating, you know, and I, I say it, um, with uh, realizing it wasn't easy. It was very, very difficult. It was lots of you know, long hours of work. I mean, long hours of work every single day, not to mention the burns and the cuts that come in the kitchen. But the the the, the most amazing part was that it, it went with like, there was some kind of magic to it, really. You know, it was always, uh, it looked like the path was there already because you know everything when you look back the dots are connected you can see that if this didn't happen that wouldn't happen you know and some crises were actually there because they were necessary for you to get to another place you know so it was it was a magical journey i i i feel it i feel it and i i really say it with a you know a strong belief in it you know it was like lots of miracles along the way for sure uh uh, but uh you know today finding myself having uh, a, a company that works with small farmers in West Africa and takes their products and open markets for those products and now distributing them across the U.S. in all the Whole Foods and Targets and and, and have a, a brand that really is creating a model of development for the small farming communities for rural Africa, really, just taking a product that no one had heard of and, 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 and making it a, a world-class grain. I'm talking about Fonio, which is a grain that I've been championing when I started the, the idea of doing that, it really came from just the idea of bringing African food because it's not in New York and now opening a restaurant and now writing a cookbook. And now write, as I'm writing a cookbook, realizing that, hey, I have to think of substitutions for ingredients. I have to figure out ways to bring those ingredients instead of substitutions. And this is how I went and got this food company that would bring the ingredients and the ingredients, I wanted them to have an impact back home, you know, because that was a way of me to give back because hey, everything I got, everything I'm doing is thanks to the inspiration I'm getting from back home. And those small farmers, they are the ones who are, you know, not getting any credits, but none of our food would be possible as chefs 
none of those beautiful places that you see in our cookbooks and restaurants would be possible without the ingredients that those small farmers are growing. So I'm like, you know, figure out a way to credit them and to not only create them, but give opportunities for them because, you know, they don't have access to market to small farmers in Africa. They don't have access to markets. They have amazing products like Fonio. Fonio is an amazing grain that grows in poor soil, that's drought resistant, that regenerates the soil. But that's also very nutritious. It's, it's so gluten-free. It's very, very nutritious. So, you know, why isn't it a grain that's known around the world? Why isn't it a grain that brings wealth to these farmers these farmers live in the poorest conditions these farmers live in an area where all the youngsters are leaving refugees they're trying to go to the city or they're trying to go to europe because they don't have opportunities let's create the opportunities so i'm just answering your question that journey being able to take a seed like this a grain like this and naively thinking i'm gonna make it a world-class grain and today having turned into that dream, a reality, turn it into a reality. You know, I'm saying naively because I didn't know I had to create a chain of value. I had to figure out, you know, how to, you know, the processing, how to package it and how to just find the right distribution. I didn't, I knew nothing about it, but just the the dream and the, 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 the naivety is really what made it happen. And, and uh, you know, that's why I mentioned all the miracles and the magic in between. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. It's so beautiful to hear that story. And for those who don't know, Fonio is spelled F-O-N-I-O. Um, and folks, can you can listen to uh, Pierre's TED Talk uh, about this grain and how he brought that to um, the United States and the West. Uh, so Pierre, thank you so much for your time. Are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you and your, your brands and, and what you're up to? Oh, yeah. Um, so I have a website, pierrejam.com, T-H-I-A-M, my last name, Pierre, P-I-E-R-R-E. I have yolele.com, which is my food company. My restaurant uh, in New York, I have two restaurants, Teranga. The website is itsteranga.com, I-T-S-T-E-R-A-N-G-A.com. I have three cookbooks out there. The last one is dedicated to Fonio. So if you're interested more to know about Fonio, you can go out and, and take a look at it. It's a great, it's a grain that I believe is really the type we need to consider seriously now that we're talking about climate change and we're talking about you know, diversifying our diet and, and saving biodiversity. So and it's a grain that cooks in five minutes. So the cookbook is dedicated to that. But I have two other cookbooks, uh, Senegal and Yolele. And uh, I have another cookbook coming up in next spring. So look at look up for that. And also I'm on social media at Chef Pierre Jam if you are on Instagram or Twitter and all of that. Yes. Amazing. Uh, please check him out on Instagram. I love your Instagram feed. I think it's very fun. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time and for our audience. Thanks for joining and for listening in this episode. We learn about why eating and sharing food is an act of love with Senegalese chef Pierre Cham. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one -on -one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, personal development, and spirituality. Thanks again.